Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. If you value what we do, we could sure use your support. You can visit the uh, donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit doing good work, please consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dining, carryout, and delivery service seven days a week. Uh, check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake, FamilyPsychiatry.com. It is my delight to welcome to the program Corrine Sanchez, and she joins us from New Mexico. She is with uh, Tewa Women United. Corrine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I want to talk about how abortion rights and uh, the, the, the Supreme Court ruling on abortion affects abortion rights in New Mexico, specifically among Native communities. Also get your take on climate change and the, the announcement today by Pope Francis in Canada. But first, so people know who we're talking to, give us a little background on Tewa Women United. Sure. Tewa Women United was formed in 1989 um, when I was graduating from high school. It was <laughs> formed by women in our community. Um, and some relatives of mine, my mother and a couple of my aunts were involved in the early years, and my mother continues to be involved, and my aunts continue to be involved, um, who were concerned about issues such as the ones that we're talking about today that were happening in our indigenous communities, our table communities, and how women and children were impacted by various trauma and violence directed at them. Um, and we really formed around healing and healing issues or healing these issues that are facing our communities. We're a multi-issue organization um, focusing on gender justice, environmental justice, reproductive justice, and healing justice. Good. Uh, excellent. And, and, and you are, are a network of, of many tribes, correct? We're a multicultural, multiracial organization. Okay. Also, it's, it's, beyond, it's even beyond the uh, Native communities in New Mexico that are involved. Yes. Okay. Some of our programming focus specifically on in Tewa indigenous communities, and others are open to the community that we serve here in Española, Rio Riba, northern New Mexico area. Yeah. So uh, big news a couple weeks ago with the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on abortion, uh, basically repealing the tradition that's been in place for most of my life and all of yours, uh, the, um, the, the, the decision on abortion on, on Roe v. Wade. I've heard horror stories of how that is affecting or expected to affect communities around the country. How is it specifically affecting communities you work with in New Mexico? Yes, um, we know that abortion care is part of the health care that we should receive as women, as birthing people in our communities. And, you know, as an indigenous person, a Tewa person that receives health care, usually our health care comes from Indian health services if we don't have private insurance. Um, and in New Mexico, as well as across the country, um, those on Medicaid or Medicare also receive um healthcare services through public health services and or Indian health services. Uh, and so this ruling, you know, has a, a detrimental impact on our communities, but um, as indigenous people who access services through IHS, you know, um, and Medicaid often, that before Roe Hyde Amendment was in place or the Hyde Amendment is in place, uh, you know, in that time frame, And so that Hyde Amendment really limits um, public health services and those who receive um, health care um, through that. So abortion care was never accessible for indigenous communities through um, that system because of that law or the Hyde Amendment that's in place. Now, be, be, because uh, be, because uh, Native nations, uh, Native communities are sovereign nations within the U.S., does that, does that unique status uh, provide any protection against a, you know, a, a law, a, a change in the change in law that would take away abortion rights? I mean, are you able to push back against that because of uh, your status as a Native community? 
No. Again, we receive our health care service, which is a trust responsibility, okay. a treaty right responsibility from the U.S. government to our communities. And IHS is the provider of that. And we know um, historically that Indian health services, public health services, are totally underfunded. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So to be able to access care and because, you know, communities are spread out, most tribal communities are rural the clinics and IHS facilities are often distances from um, rural tribal communities, so a lot of them are not accessible. Right. Um, and then when you do access them, you know, it's a maze to kind of get through, um, and so it's not always um, confidential. It's not always um, timely. I know people are waiting for dental care, you know, uh, months on end. People are waiting for mm. Specialized care, like around mm-hmm. diabetes and heart disease and other things, where we have to get um, approval before we can go um, and seek specialized care. So it's again, you know, and most IHS programs do not have like SANE units, like um, for sexual assault survivors to be able to access examinations. Um, and again, a lot of of these programs don't even have um, pregnancy care units. Or OBGYNs, mm. um, so so that e- that just impacts even more, right? Our ability to to get the care that we need in a timely manner, um, and so that's where you see high death rates related to um, certain health issues. And abortion care access is also part of that process, and um, not having people trained, and and now with this law, kind of actually prosecuting um, physicians and others who provide this care, it's even more of a threat to our 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 women and our pregnant people. Yeah. Are there any uh, particular uh, changes being suggested in New Mexico? I mean, every state is responding differently, some way worse than others. What's the status in New Mexico in terms of the state's response to the repeal of Roe v. Wade? Mm. So New Mexico has been amazing. We have a strong organizing um, community here around reproductive justice. We've been organizing and meeting for years um, and in 2021, we, you know, we passed the, we abolished the ban on abortion here. So, um, essentially decriminalizing abortion care and abortion access here in New Mexico, um, which is a powerful um, community united effort, right? Um, the majority of people we know support access to abortion care. Um, there was a survey conducted by Strong Families New Mexico around rural communities, tribal communities. Um, Latino women, all who are, you know, the majority supporting access to abortion care. And so that was a huge um, win for us. Um, and it's also, you know, uh, also can be threatened, right, with all of this movement that's happening. But we continue to stand um, together. We know that the governor of New Mexico put a strong executive order in place, um, protecting care and protecting those that were traveling in. Um, mm-hmm. And so these are things that our communities are continuing to do um, because tribal communities here in New Mexico can, you know, access now care if they have Medicaid and, and other networks. And, you know, so that allows us to mm-hmm. also access abortion care and um, reproductive care outside of the IHS system. But it's still, you know, people don't really realize that here in New Mexico we also have midwifery care reimbursable by um, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, by Medicaid. Um, and so, yes, I think New Mexico is in a unique place. I, I'm really proud of New Mexico. Oftentimes we're at the bottom of most lists. Um, <laughs> and this one we're at the top of really protecting our women and birthing peoples here um, and those generations. Well, New Mexico is at the top of my list in terms of states that I walked across in 2014 with the uh, Great okay. March for Climate Action. There were about 50 of us, roughly who walked from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. to uh, sound the alarm about the climate crisis. And we had good experiences and a few bad experiences in every state, but uh, New Mexico was uh, was was just, uh, it was it was wonderful. I mean, we, um, we passed through the lands of, I think, tw- 11 different tribal communities, and they were all, everyone was so hospitable toward, hospitable toward us. Um, I mean, even putting us up on, well, there was one night where we had horrible storms. We had a dust storm colliding with a thunderstorm, creating total havoc, and uh, our tents weren't able to withstand that, and, and uh, the community put us up in the local casino. So uh, New Mexico ranks high in my, in my estimation of great places to, to live and to visit, so, and to walk through. <laughs> but speaking, of, speaking of the uh, climate crisis, uh, 
How is, uh, yeah, I hear stories, but maybe you can tell us from your perspective, how is that affecting New Mexico specifically? Well, we know in New Mexico we've, we have a limited access to um, water, right? We're a arid area, um, and now with this climate justice and climate change issues happening, um, we're actually in a, a long extended drought. And so we've just had the fires that are devastating Mora County. Um, you know, we've had fires the year before that. We've had the Cerro Grande fire. Um, it's just a reality that our communities live in right now. Right. Um, it impacts our water tables. Um, it impacts, you know, as also development, right? There's a lot of development that is happening. I keep seeing these buildings popping up. I'm like, where are people going to get the water? Yeah, right, right. And then we have companies coming in wanting to take the water from New Mexico, right? Um, Diversions and things like that and actual bottle companies wanting to bottle our water. Um, And so then making something that is accessible before to us. Now we have to charge people, like people are charging for that access. Um, yeah, so it's been devastating. We, yeah. We've done a lot of environmental justice work with Los Alamos National Laboratory um, and other contaminations coming from other companies and businesses um, that impact our land, our air, and water. And, and what we know as indigenous communities is that um, the first giver of life is Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her land, her plant relatives, our plant relatives, the waters, those are the things that give us life and air, right? So if we don't have those, if we don't have access to those, it also impacts our cultural right. practices in these different ways. And so, yes, I think we've been facing this in communities and, and organizing um, in different ways. No DAPL, right? Um, I don't know more. All of those ra- raise visibility to the issues facing indigenous communities mm-hmm. and the access to our resources. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, DAPL, has certainly uh, been a uh, problem that has brought people together from, you know, across various cultures and whatnot. Because here in Iowa, uh, your, very, your average conservative Iowa farmer was not happy about his, his or her land being taken for an oil pipeline either. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and we were engaged in that battle at the same time that Standing Rock, uh, the Standing Rock nations were, uh, were uh, opposing the uh, pipeline in North Dakota. Now, um, when, I, when I was, uh, I remember having a conversation with a farmer in New Mexico, near near La Bajada, and he was saying that you know water, as you would reiterate, was like was perhaps their biggest challenge for him to remain viable as a farmer. And he talked about a new, or he talked about golf communities in Santa Fe that were um, you know, heavy users of water, and there was a fight over you know who was going to get what. And he said they, uh, the the golf communities were winning that one. They were they were probably going to make it hard for him to continue farming. Is that, uh, is that consistent with your, uh, your experience and your reality when it comes to water? Yes. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a proponent of, how do you mean? I don't really like golf courses. <laughs> um, yeah, yes, they, 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 they do consume a lot of water, even if you do gray water reclamation, right? Like right. There's a lot of um, people practicing that and spacing out greens and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a challenge. I think there's ways that we can all take steps to, to be conscious of our impact. Um, and golf courses definitely need to be mm-hmm. one. Um, and yes, you know, we should prioritize our farmers receiving water to water crops and plants and because those are what feed our communities. Right. I think a lot of us that were impacted, all of us globally, right, impacted by COVID, um, really realized when the food um, supplies are cut off that we are in great jeopardy. Right. Um, and so really if we want to survive certain pandemics again in the future and this climate change that we need to look at localized economies, and a lot of that base is going to be our, our first providers or our farmers yeah. um, to get us the food that we want to eat. Um, you know, collect. We're, we have a long agricultural heritage here in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Our indigenous populations were agricultural based, right? We have waffle gardens. We survived different droughts. And we know, and as we've gone to monocropping, as we've gone to big industry and big farming, um, that's taken away the durability of our plants and our seeds. And so, again, that seed sovereignty is so important. The diversity of mm. seeds and, and the ability to survive different climates and, and things like that are powerful, right? Um, and so our communities knew this, and 
Um, and as we go, again go to this big business, we lose that and yeah. we lose that information, and, and that's a threat to us, um, yeah. all of us, not just indigenous communities, but all of us. Sure. So, in the limited time we have left here, uh, Corinne, uh, this week um, Pope Francis uh, traveled to Canada, where he apologized. And I'll quote from the I'll quote from the New York Times: He apologized for decades of evil suffered by indigenous people at church schools that were centers of abuse and death. How did, you, how did you and others that you work with feel about uh, his response to what has been exposed and is considered a pretty horrific uh, chapter in uh, North American history? Mm, I mean, it's, it's a small step. Um, I think there's a lot that we need to understand about historical trauma and the impacts that churches and religions have had on our communities. Um, you know, the sexual assault and um, child sexual abuse that happened within um, missions and within Catholic churches and all of that is well known. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a movement in Indian country and indigenous communities around the doctrine of discovery um, and having the um, religious entities take that back mm. um, because that basically set forward, you know, that they could claim land in the name of the crown, they could claim land right. in the name of the church, they could, um, whatever land they saw, the people that were on it, they didn't see them as human, they saw them as subhuman, um, you know, those are still on the books and we need to really, yeah. we need to really get rid of them because as we see with Roe v. Wade, um, they can come and, and go back and renege and take stuff. Right. Um, so there should be things that we should be able to take off our books, just like New Mexico with the ban on abortion. Um, you know, we really need to have that acknowledgement and have those things taken. We have um, Sarah Augustine actually visiting us this week, who is one of the founders or persons that educating people on the doctrine of discovery. Corinne, but it's a small it's a small step, and I think there's things yeah. that more things that need to be done. Good. Well, Corinna, thank you uh, so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to discuss these things with our audience. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. Folks, we've been talking with... I look with... forward to, to more interviews. <laughs> Good, all right. <laughs> Folks, we've been talking with uh, Corinne Sanchez with Tewa Women United. And when we come back from a short break, uh, Kim and Frank Spillers are going to join us. We're going to be talking about the Great Resignation and how that might be offering some real positive opportunities for small rural communities. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, you know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, the niche we provide here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. You can go to the website, FallonForum.com. You can sign up for our newsletters, uh, donate. Even better, you can become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Uh, joining me now on the phone from Atlantic, Iowa, Frank and Kim Spillers. They're entrepreneurs. Uh, they help rural communities thrive by attracting people and small businesses. 
and they recently caught my attention by talking about the Great Resignation, and that's great with a capital G, resignation with a capital R, and how that might actually provide some benefits, some potential, some opportunity for rural communities. Uh, Kim, Frank, welcome to the program, and let's start off by saying, hey, what the heck is the Great Resignation anyhow? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a whole new word, isn't it? So thanks for having us, Ed. Uh, we really appreciate it a lot. Sure. So I'm Kim, I'm Kim Spillers. Um, the Great Resignation apparently started before COVID. Um, it is a movement. It's a shift in where people want to work and how people want to work. And what got the uh, demographers' attention is that people left their workplaces, left the workforce in higher than normal numbers during COVID. And so that's, uh, that's what really sparked, I think, the, um, the pursuit of it, the capture of the numbers, the, that's what got people's attention, is just that all of a sudden, the workforce um, shifted and it changed and people wanted to know why and they uh, gave it the nickname the great resignation because basically the the opportunity we're working a job that wasn't paying you very well that you really weren't that satisfying with satisfied with uh, you know dumping that became a higher priority in part thanks to covid some would say because of the stimulus checks received from the federal government but i i tend to doubt that that had much of a big role in it i uh, i don't i have not done any research but i would agree with you just on the premise um we certainly uh we were out of work for 18 months and so um we if we were not out of the workforce by choice, and I suspect that we were not the only people who were in that boat. Um, so the stimulus checks and the PPP and all of those kinds of programs, different su subject, but it did, um, I think, inform people and give them, give them some opportunity to maybe sit back and reflect about their lives. Yeah. And yes, so the great resignation did give people an opportunity to say, hey, I don't want to work 60 hours a week <laughs> and be unappreciated. Right. I, I kind of like this thing about being home with my kids when they are home and things like that, um, or with my partner or my spouse. And it gives, just to look at that work-life balance, I think was something that, that COVID really did give us an opportunity to look at as a country and as a workforce. And so post-COVID, the, the um, mentality that led to the great resignation persists. And people are saying, you know, this is working out for me. Or maybe in some cases it isn't. Because obviously if you, if you resign, if you quit your job, that might have a significant impact on your income. But I think what more and more people are discovering is they can be useful to a company, to a business. Maybe they can even be their own you know, entrepreneur. Uh, and they can do that from their home. And I think right. that's, that's, and that, that to me is where I think you're going to go. I don't know. We haven't had this conversation before. So I think that's where you're going to go with the notion that there is opportunity in this reality. Well, there's there's huge opportunity and and SourceLink, which uh, is an organization that's helped with resources on small businesses, um, talked about that during the height of the pandemic, thirty percent of small businesses closed. Thirty wow. percent. Yeah. So so where did those employees go? Well, they they had to become um, entrepreneurs by force, uh, and 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 some come entrepreneurs by choice. But they went home and they started these sideline businesses, if you will, uh, micro business. And in, in that realm, micro businesses documented in 2020, they grew about 90 percent um, or they grew 2.8 million more online micro businesses mm. in 2020 than there were in 2019. Wow, that's big. So, that's big. So people, yeah, people went home and they said, hey, I can do this online. Yeah. And you know, I can wear, I can not, wear my yoga pants. <laughs> I don't own I mean, so <laughs> yoga pants. Anyway, uh, so um but let me let me ask you this. So so uh, th that's great. But the the other the flip side of that is more and more people have to start using local businesses, local services for those entrepreneurs to be able to make a living. 
And that's the, that's, the, that's, that's the compatible piece that has to happen. Is that happening as well? Well, when you're online, everything is local. Sure. Really. Right. Um, okay. And, and if you don't have a storefront, um, which many of them don't do, then, um, yeah, I mean, you, what, you re- what a community needs to do, and here's, here's where the rural communities really have a competitive advantage, uh, is because, as Kim said, people are looking for where they want to live, and then they're going to bring their job or their business with them. Mm-hmm. So specifically in Iowa, because we actually do have a pretty good broadband infrastructure with our local telephone companies, Um, depending upon where you live, of course, we still need broadband for everybody, but depending upon where where it is. um, So let's take like the community of Stanton, uh, which is uh, about 12 miles to the east of Red Oak in southwest Iowa. And has a water tower shaped like a giant teacup. Used to. It's now in the museum. Oh, that is that is so, that is so sad. So sad. Yeah. But they did save it. They did save okay, it. Okay, good. Anyway, and, they, and wait a minute. And all, and all the towns, all the houses are painted white, if memory serves. And, yep, they're 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 pretty much. Uh, well, who would want to live there? Well, that's, that's the culture. That's the their right. culture. But any, but their their phone company is is a mom and pop. It's a co-op down there, Farmers Mutual, and they have. Um, Due to the Universal Service Fund, uh, local phone companies got you know huge amounts of, of money that they could invest in broadband. So they have fiber to the home. Um, even hmm. in their farm areas, they have fiber to the farmhouse. So you can have an acreage and have better broadband service than you would have in, say, downtown Omaha or downtown Denver. And you can you can work out here. You're still within an hour to a major airport, uh, between two major airports, actually, Des Moines and Omaha, uh, two hours north of Kansas City. So you have markets that are, are very accessible that you can use, but you can be online and you can do business wherever you want to do business. But the, the local community needs to know who's online and who their local businesses are and who's working out of their home. That's where the buy local campaign comes in because that is what I call the hidden economy of a rural community is people working out of their house. Right. Um, and, and, and it takes some digging to do to find that to find that economy. So I would think with the appeal, I mean, to me, there's great appeal living in a small town. Uh, just the, just being able to know your neighbors, uh, being able to get around without any trouble at all. Um, but, you know, you still see most of the population growth in urban centers, uh, and this is certainly true of Iowa, most of the population growth in the state is happening in the larger urban centers. What What is it that's, that's, that's not bringing people to those rural towns now that they have this opportunity to basically work from anywhere? Culture um, and, and lack of housing. In a lot of our rural communities, they just don't have the housing yet, um, but they are addressing that. In fact, we saw a presentation where they're starting to 3D print houses, and uh, which is which is a fascinating process. So they can put up houses um, within days, within days, yeah. basically, of a 3D printer how, um, on site. Yeah. So, and um, how, how long does a 3D printed house last? I mean, I'm living in one here that's 140 years old or so. Well, they're not old enough to have a time frame uh, to mm, it. I guess okay. I haven't seen uh, what sort of projection there is. We're actually going to a meeting in Stanton Wednesday, and we'll know more after that. So if you want a future time together. Yeah. Um, but what just about 3D printed houses is one of the industries I see that's going to be shifting if the country or the world goes to this kind of opportunity is the insurance industry, because these are tornado and hurricane proof, basically. Right. And so that's gonna that, that's gonna change a lot of landscapes uh, for for the world. So anyway, that's kind of that's kind of an aside, but that would be a, a potential change that would be coming to communities. I guess um, more more opportunities for people who would be welcoming new residents um, from the Great Resignation. If people are looking to say move to you know rural America anywhere is uh, the the opportunity for new residents and then the ideas that they bring the businesses 
that increases your tax base. It gives you more options for your school districts. You know, if your school district is declining, as many Iowa rural communities are, um, then saving your schools is a really big deal for rural communities. So having having these shifts is a real mind, um, it's a mind shift for people who have lived in their communities perhaps for five and six generations um, to welcome new people and new ideas. And I would, uh, I would so think... It's, it's going to be fascinating the next few years to see how this all unfolds. For sure, and especially with climate change getting worse, we're going to see more and more climate refugees fleeing yeah. drought-stricken areas, areas out west, fleeing places that will someday be under sea, under the ocean. But uh, yeah, I, I think there'll be a significant migration. But here's, a, here's something that occurs to me, and that is that there may be a mindset in many small towns saying, you know, we're, we're really fine. We're just fine being small and having a, you know, a, a handful of people we know, and we don't really want a whole bunch of other people moving in here. We'd rather not build those houses. We'd rather not have that influx of people. Do you, do you find that kind of mentality Awesome. Yeah, there, there's a there's a mentality out there that if we grow too fast, it's going to be uncontrolled and we're going to get people we don't want. Um, so it is how do we have controlled growth in our community, keeping our community small. But as we explain to communities, if you're not if you're not changing with who's going to move in and become more welcoming, you're going to die. I mean, you're you're just going to decrease. We had in Iowa, we had three quarters of our counties lose population, and they were all rural. Sure. Um, and across the United States, we had uh, about three quarters of our counties uh, lose population, and they were very much all rural. So, if we want to keep the rural landscape in our rural communities, which is which is extremely important. And I think our larger communities, our metro areas are finding out they didn't pay attention to the rural population enough because they have hollowed out rural with their workforce and there's no workforce left hmm. um, for them to grab. And so they are all of a sudden waking up going, oh, maybe we had better help some rural communities. And um, that's just, it's just starting to be an awakening there. But, you know, our, our, it, people will leave a community just like an uh, a employee will leave a business. Is It's not because of the community, it's because of the people. People don't stay where they don't feel welcome. Right. And um, that's that's one of the reasons why the great resignation took place is those folks just didn't feel appreciated right. at work. They weren't paid enough, and the conditions were not weren't weren't uh, optimal. I get it. Yeah. So um, yeah. again, I think this shift uh, it may not be happening in a big way yet in terms of uh, more people moving to rural areas, but I do believe you're probably right that it is going to happen. But my concern is that. Uh, you know, there will be resistance. And I, I don't, I personally, I don't fault people for saying, hey, we don't want, we don't want a huge influx of population. We don't want our community to change radically overnight. And we'd like to manage how this happens so that we aren't uh, just kind of, you know, transformed into something. We don't want to be the West Des Moines or the Ankeny of Southwest Iowa, you know. <laughs> we, we want to have something that still preserves our rural character. Well, we use something, it's called a tapestry, and uh, we use a research firm called Esri, E-S-R-I, and Esri uh, uh, has a tapestry of who lives in your community. So you can go down to your zip code and you can get a profile um, of the, say, the the hundred percent of what characteristics do they have? What buying habits do they have? Do they own their house? What is their monthly income or their, their household income? What kind of trucks do they drive? What are their hobbies? So a community can really work on their tapestry and we, we help them say, okay, here's the tapestry of the people that are living here. Now, what type of person do you want to have live here? And they go through different tapestries. They find the qualities that they want and then you can start working on your community environment of how do you attract that type of person mm -hmm. to your community. So you can actually, you know, say this is the type of person I want in my community and then build your community that's going to maybe attract them to it. 
Um, and, and that way you can control not really who lives there, but mm. what type of qualities does that person live there? So the culture starts to change, but remains the same. Hey, well, that's uh, fascinating stuff. Um, I got to run to a break. Uh, Kim, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about the work you do, figure out how they can take advantage of the great, res great resignation, uh, how do they contact you? Well, we have a website. It's uh, ruralcommunitysolutions.com. Ruralcommunitysolutions is all one word, .com. Um, or they can email us at frank at ghorizons.com or kim at ghorizons.com, and we sure will help them out. And by the way, on the website, they can do an inventory uh, and take an assessment of their community to see if they're a welcoming community or not. It's free. You can download the assessment. It's a fun little assessment, um, and uh, they should try it. Kim, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Hans Frischeisen. Uh a German-American who has traveled the world by bike, by boat, and a good set of boots. He just wrote a book about the experience. It's a fascinating story. We'll be back in a minute with that conversation on the Valent Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Valent Forum. As you know, you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. You can check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Hey, because I'm... I'm delighted to have on my program a man I met while I was walking on the Great March for Climate Action. That seemed like a big deal. It was 3,100 miles. Uh, this man, Hans Frischeisen, has uh, walked, biked, or boated uh, 81,000 miles. So I, I bow humbly before you, Hans. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So 81,000 miles. I mean, the world's not that... The circumference of the world, you'd have to walk. You'd walk around the equator, but uh, obviously that's not going to work. No, so, <laughs> and I didn't want to repeat the route anyhow, so I had to take a good look at a globe and say, okay, this this is what I'm going to do the first time around, which actually took me through Iowa. I started in San Francisco, and I headed for the Chesapeake Bay. That was by bike. That was by bike. What year was that? That was, oh, 1997, okay. 98, something right. in that time frame. So a little while ago. But you've, you've, I assume you've been on at least six of the uh, seven continents, perhaps not the Antarctic? But I, if, if I would discover that there's a bike trail on the Antarctica, <laughs> I would probably consider well, that Well, if too. climate change continues, maybe they'll put one in, sadly. But so anyway, what motivated... Are you crazy? No, what, what, what motivated you to do this? Well, you're not far from, uh, <laughs> from uh, indicating or implying that uh, it takes uh, sort of some nuttiness to do this. But the, the thing is... It's almost like a disease. Once you get started, it keeps growing on you. 
I started out first time in 1990 with uh, my kayak trip from um, central Canada to the Arctic Ocean. And I had my then wow. 11-year-old son with me. Wow. And so this is, there's a saying in my country in Germany, this, the, the avenue of dreams, and that's the Pan American Highway. And so I said, hey, you know, I've done this northern part here, and I looked with interest at a map of the southern extension all the way down to Tierra del Fuego. And over the years, I covered exactly that distance, mm. hiking and biking mainly. So one question that people ask me when I tell them I walked across the country was how many pairs of shoes you went through. But that's not such a relevant question when you're biking and kayaking. But um, I, I'm more interested in, in, the, um, in the experiences. What, 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 um, what happened to you and with you and in terms of interacting with your environment and other people that, that had a significant impact on you? Most people want to know some of the things that went wrong, you know, dangers and challenging situations. And I have a few of those. Uh, now that I had, that I shared that I kayaked the McKinsey River, mm. that's the second largest, to the Arctic Ocean, I did another one in Siberia. Uh, from the mountains in the south, and that's a long, long stretch. But I started a little too early, and there were ice barriers, maybe about 15, 20 feet high on both sides. You were kayaking? Kayaking, that's from correct. North, north to Siberia? Yeah, from okay. the south to, to the extreme north. And I flipped. And that's not a good thing to do because the water was ice cold, oh, yeah. and there were ice barriers on both sides. And it was raining on top of that. Now, I think there must be something like guardian angels because when I fell into the water, I thought maybe I see or I have seen my family for the last time. But obviously you pop up again, you know, particularly if you know how to swim. And here's this miracle that happened. I was still within current of rapids and my boat was to my right and the paddle to my left. You need both to move on. <laughs> yes. Okay. And now I could, had only my legs left to move myself towards the shore and climb over the ice, try to drag the kayak with me. And I flipped it over to get the water out. And I knew I was not going to survive this night because I was wet, it was raining, and it mm. was miserably cold. Mm. Right. So I needed help. And uh, I had seen the village about a mile back. And so I jogged there after I grabbed my valuables, my passport, my money, and jogged through puddles of water. It was really pouring. And Russian hospitality is just uh, amazing. So I knocked at the first door and I was thinking as I was jogging, what would I say when someone opens the door? Because my Russian is very limited. Mm. And I know the Russian word for boat and all I had to do is just karabl, that means boat, and give the flipping sign here with my hands <laughs> and point at my parka that I was wearing. And I think everybody would understand what happened. And out came Ex the vodka. Except, not yet, <laughs> except no one opened the door. I went to all 15 houses, I knocked hard, and then it dawned on me, the village had been abandoned. So I had an option. You know, and I had to act. Wait, I was there, there, you were knocking on doors and nobody was there. Nobody was in the village. Nobody. Just Fido. Little dog him, way, you know, moving. Well, the why, why had the village been abandoned? Well, I have no idea. No one was there to ask. <laughs> okay, well, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. All right. And so I had a choice either to break in, okay, get in to, to survive, leave a note with money, or go back and continue, and that's what I decided. That's, oh, really? I was going to say that was an, that would be an easy choice for me: break in, warm up, leave a note. Yeah, but no, you went back. I went back, and yet you're alive to tell the story. Because I knew about five miles further on was another village, and I thought, well, Another maybe there's somebody there. Maybe an and abandoned. That's village. where the vodka was. Oh, since the vodka. Okay. So it exactly happened the way I shared it with you. I saw smoke coming out of a chimney, uh, only one in this village. All the others were inactive, the chimneys. 
And so I came to the door and I knocked and Husky, a Russian fellow opened the door and I said, Karabel, and I make this sign of flipping and he just moved me in. Okay, take off your clothes. Um, and he brought me some other clothes, some warm stuff and put me in front of some food, and then came the vodka. Yes, you're right. <laughs> okay. So how many countries have you been in altogether? You know, I have not counted them, but it would probably run to 130. 130? Yeah. Out of uh, just under 200. So yeah. most of them. Wow. That's right. You and, know, and th those that I have not been to are normally just little islands that have the, the independence and call themselves a country. So now, usually when people do these very long extended uh, treks by foot, bike, running, kayaking, there's there's a there's a there's a motive, a pur purpose. I mean, we we walked across the country for climate action. I've talked to people who walked across the country to raise funds for uh, for injured veterans, for uh, mental health care, uh, and yours was more focused on just the sheer adventure of the experience. Is that fair enough? Not not totally, because you're right, that's the leading thing. I just have a neck for adventure. Um, and may have maybe something to do that I never had a home. I was a refugee of Russians, okay, and uh, settled then in West Germany. And my mother escaped with me. I was only four years old, with me sitting on the wreck of her bicycle. Went Wait, I, I'm confused. What, what happened again? You, you, you were born in Germany. It was born in a part that later became Russia. You were in East Germany? No, oh. no, in East Prussia. East Prussia, sorry. Okay, it's okay. a little different. East, yes. Okay, East, East Germany was the part that became and still maintained their sure. sovereignty, but was a communist state. So you were fleeing Russians because that part of, the, of Europe was contested? Yeah, by okay. during World War II, towards the end of World War II. And your mom fled on a bicycle. Yeah, so my you, father knew that this thing with Adolf Hitler was not going well, right. and he gave her the message, when you hear the artillery, get out. Okay. And she grabbed her valuables, that included me, and put me on the rack of her bike. and uh, The rack of the bike's rack. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and got out of there. Uh, so, you, so, yeah, biking for you goes way back. <laughs> right, so that probably started me to have a, this closeness, this... Uh, to, to biking, it has always been in my life. I come from a culture where biking is very common. Right. Okay. Um, but to ask what my other purposes are, my books that I actually hope to mention here. Yes, you will indeed. Okay. Pa paddling, um, Paddling, and Pedis. In, in it, I also talk about health. I share how I ma managed to stay without any disease for 50 years and also how to support peace and how to protect our wonderful planet. Mm. These are all things that motivate me to kind of share with who, wherever I can go. This is in, in my writings. And I have talked to a few people that have read my book and they, they really think that is uh, uh, high quality stuff. I hope it is. Yeah. And uh, your book describes the uh, travel as uh, by means of muscle fuel. Mm -hmm. Your muscles specifically. Right. Yeah. As opposed to fossil fuel. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, you are now uh, giving readings on this book. Uh, you're traveling to try to get people to pick up a copy and, and kind of share in the adventure that way? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And maybe uh, have their life maybe a little bit affected and be more respectful of uh, how to treat our planet, um, not to be wasteful, not to cause damage, um, to get away from as much as possible from uh, uh, driving vehicles, and consider kayaking, biking, hiking as a very adventuresome, exciting alternative. Mm. Yeah. So 81,000 miles. Uh, you've got to be, I'm guessing, in your 60s, maybe a little older. I'm 81. 81, my gosh. I guess when you, so, so you basically have, 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 have uh, traveled by muscle fuel 1,000 miles for every year you've been alive. Are you going to continue? Is there, is there, are there more miles to be logged in this venture? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'm too young. I'm only 81. <laughs> okay. okay so in fact, you heard me say that uh, in August, I would come through here to pick a, a plane and go to bike along the Danube from mm. Germany into Hungary. Mm. So that's my plan. Oh, amazing. Uh, Hans, uh, Hans Frischheisen, folks, uh, adventurer, uh, traveler, um, uh, advocate for good health. And again, not having been sick in 50 years is quite an accomplishment. I don't know of anyone who can, who can uh, uh, match that. That's, that's pretty good. It's so good. easy. It's yeah. just uh, proper lifestyle choices. That's all it is. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, I, I normally fare better by not seeing medical doctors because their business is disease and mine is health. Hmm. And if people want to get a copy of your book, what do they do to do oh, that? Okay. Uh, I, the simplest way is to Amazon. Uh, Amazon charges twenty two ninety five. Um, and what if people like me who can't stand Amazon wanted to buy the book from a, a more more local source? You can go to REI. <laughs> REI, okay. Okay, REI yes. told me today they are interested in ordering a bunch. Hmm. Um, you can also go to Beaverdale. Well, here in Des Moines, okay. So some local bookstores will have it as okay. well. Okay, yeah. or they can contact me. I have a bunch. All right. And how do they contact you? I have a phone number. I have email. What's your email address? Healthmomentum at gmail.com. Healthmomentum at gmail.com. Hans, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Folks, when we come back after a short break, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farms is going to join me, and we're going to talk about the pros and cons of growing up. And no, we don't mean going from childhood to adulthood. We mean a different kind of growing up. Stick with us and we'll explain. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business or nonprofit sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westerm and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open from Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. With me in the studio now, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And uh, you've sent me a very intriguing title to the conversation we're going to have here. The pros and cons of growing up. Well, that can be taken a lot of ways. Which way are we taking it? We are taking it up. Up, all right. We are taking it vertically. So we're talking about vertical farming. Hmm, okay. Um, we can really quickly run through what in the world it is, who's doing it, and mainly some of the uh, advantages and disadvantages that people who have looked into this a little more than we have have found. Well, and it's not just a matter of growing a tomato of a big steak. I mean, there are, there are buildings, I understand. There are buildings being built to accommodate huge 
amount of a huge amount of food being grown inside and vertically. Right. We do vertical farming, meaning that we have <laughs> Sticker we have some trellises to train our squumpkin, right, our squash, right. to grow up on the fence, and the cucumbers. So peas, things like that. We like to use our vertical space, but this is taking it to an extreme. Yeah. It's gained a lot more attention since the concept was introduced in 1999 by students at Columbia University. A professor of public and environmental health challenged them to design a skyscraper that could feed 50,000 people. <laughs> did they Did they accomplish that? They accomplished creating the design. They never did build okay. the skyscraper, of course. <laughs> I don't think the university was going to fund that, but it caught the idea caught attention in the news. And yeah. since then, people have gone, aha, I can either use this concept to find ways to grow food to feed more people and be really good to the earth, or I can make some really big bucks off of this, uh, you know, fad. Yeah. And so how many vertical farms a, are there in the U.S.? It's more than a fad. Um, the the Yahoo Globe Newswire, and I couldn't find the original source for this, but they say there were more than 2,000 vertical farms Jeez. in the U.S. in 2019. So the numbers are really growing, and uh, 60% of those were in small to medium-scale companies, which to me is reassuring. Yeah, interesting. My mind is uh, flashing to pros and cons. Again, good good aspects of this, bad aspects. What, what do you think? Is this a... Is vertical farming, is the expansion of it, the development of it, is this a good thing? Well, there are some good ideas about it. And first of all, vertical farming involves a large structure or building. We would hope that those would be ones that were already in existence, but a lot are being built. They uh, offer the opportunity to grow food in a controlled environment. They are grown through either hydroponics, aquaponics, or aeroponics where you just kind of have, have a misty environment. There's there's actually no medium for huh. the roots of the plants. Interesting. Um, so so these, uh, some of are, are using, art, most are using artificial lighting. Most uh, have It sounds very energy element. intensive. Very energy intensive. Yeah. So there are some advantages. Uh, you do get a, more, a very stable crop yield. It's not like what we do here, Ed. We're having mm. A uh, little late start with our zucchini <laughs> because we're 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 fighting some you know just some little bug maybe a little well, it's mildew a, the, that the kind cold of thing. slow spring you know the spring spring just never sprung well that's what we can't control the right. weather so in, in a, in in a building places. you can you can control okay. the weather you can control the humidity you control the temperature the 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 sun the light you control the nutrient feed into the plants. Um, some of these are really good at saving water because water can huh. be re recycled all throughout the system. Once it's used for a plant, it can be pulled back down and used again for the next crop. So hmm. there are some big savings in water. Uh, they can be fully organic, no drift. They have so control over that. Even with, hi hi with hydroponics, aquaponics, the mist, the aerial misting you described, there are no chemicals involved in that? Uh, they don't need pesticides. They don't need herbicides. They, okay. But there are some fertilizer uses, and that's where a farmer could decide whether or not to use something mm, okay. to, to boost their crop that is, uh, is earth-friendly. There are some, some really serious drawbacks, though. High yeah. energy consumption, as yeah, you've said. So. Yeah. Uh, pollination. People don't think about... Well, if, if we grow more of our plants inside, what do the pollinators outside do? So it's fewer crops that are being grown that our natural bees, butterflies, other insects can feed themselves mm -hmm. and their hives from. Um, the, uh, the infrastructure means that there's a lot of construction, there's a lot of um, you know, bringing of materials into an area to build. Um, there are some studies that say sometimes the plants can contain fewer nutrients. They do provide nutrients through the water that maintains the plants. However, this was interesting, there are plants out in the natural, in the wild, like we have, that have to defend themselves against pests and other harmful factors. 
when these plants do that, they produce sure. substances inside themselves that can provide health benefits to human beings on consumption. Uh, and that wouldn't happen with a plant growing indoors in a vertical right. farm. They okay. have no challenges, no challenges yeah. to their system. I worry about just the concept of people losing connection with the earth. That mm. to me, that to me is a drawback. That was not listed yeah. on any of the pros and cons lists and, that I accessed. And so is it possible that they, they would have robots working in these farms? They do. They do. So they um, all they already do. Yes, uh, not all of them. <laughs> okay. And the workforce that's I never got along with robots. The workforce that's required is completely different than what you think of as typical farm labor. It's a big conversation, and I look <clears> forward to seeing you know, more information. Can we get a robot on this program next to discuss uh, that robot's perspective on? Vertical farming? We can oh. do that. <laughs> All right. Kathy Burns, folks, with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Pros and cons of growing up. Well, growing up is overrated. Anyway, uh, hey, thanks to my guests today, Dr. Corinne Sanchez, Frank Spillers, and Kimberly Spillers. Also, Hans Frischeisen. Also, thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. And again, thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.